We were able to estimate that for a typical facial scrub bottle, there could be 3 million microplastic pieces. Speaking of sustainability, a podcast where we talk to frontrunners, innovators and business specialists on, well, sustainability and where they think their industries are headed and more importantly, how they can make them more sustainable. Hi, I'm Hani Larma from EcoChain, and in today's conversation, I'm speaking with Imogen Napper, an expedition scientist from National Geographic. We speak about her research into plastic pollution and how we can tackle this issue from both an individual and an industry level. Stay tuned. Hi, Imogen. Thank you so much for joining me today in this conversation. And it's really a pleasure to speak with you and, and get to know a little bit more about your research. Thank you very much. I'm really excited to chat to you. Firstly, could you maybe give a small introduction uh, about yourself and about your expedition work and work at National Geographic? Yes, certainly. So I grew up in a small seaside town in the southwest of the UK called Clevedon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was really lucky to be next to the ocean and feel connected to it. But when I was growing up, I never remember there being any plastic pollution Mm. on the beaches where I lived but turn forward 20 or so years and now when I go back to my family house and I visit my parents I go back to the same beaches and now there's beach clean groups and you can see visible litter and it's really crazy to think that this has happened what I feel in my lifetime that I can literally see the impact of plastic pollution. Right. So I wonder, what's it going to be like in a, another 20 or so years? I've always enjoyed science and research and I felt a bit lost at school that everyone knew what they wanted to do. Uh, and I had no idea what I wanted to do apart from that I loved research. Yeah. And I had a, a really rewarding master's supervisor that literally sat me down made me draw a mind map of everything that I was passionate about and I found interesting I also pointed to protecting the oceans and trying to take plastic pollution out of our oceans or or even better stop it getting in there in the first place and that really opened the doors for me becoming a plastic pollution scientist so from then I did a PhD at the University of Plymouth I specialised in the sources of plastic going into the marine environment, but from ways we wouldn't typically consider. Right. So we did research on microbeads and cosmetics, washing our clothes, because a lot of our clothes are made out of plastic, mm-hmm. looking at biodegradable plastics and how they break down. Yeah. And then after that, having um, a PhD under my belt, I then did a few postdocs and started specialising in other areas such as um, car tires so when we're driving around and bits of tire coming off our car but I was also really fortunate to join National Geographic yeah. and the expedition team to the Ganges River we went all the way from the Bear Bengal up to near the Himalayas yeah. right near the top and we did a whole research piece looking at how much plastic was going into a major river system and then potentially out to sea. Wow that sounds really interesting how were you actually researching that? How do you uh, start with researching such a topic? So a lot of the development of this expedition was figuring out how the heck are we going to actually sample it. Mm-hmm. The expedition is a big bulk itself, but then there's so much behind the scenes of just trying to get the right equipment, uh, having a look at the literature and seeing what's been done before. Yeah. Uh, 
making sure you're going to have all of the, the lab access and the lab equipment that you'll need when you come back that you can analyze the plastic that you've collected. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of planning in that stage. Yeah. And we decided the Ganges River. Um, we know it's unfortunately a, a very polluted river in some parts, mm-hmm. but so is every river, you could say. Um, the Ganges River gave us this perfect baseline that we could go to and have a look at a major river system yeah. going from the source all the way out to sea. But it's no different than, let's say, the Thames or the Mississippi. Right. And we were able to connect with local researchers on the ground uh, to make it collaborative. So in my work, what I did, I was part of the water team. So there are three different teams. We had a land-based team that were looking at litter on land and the different proportions, the different mm-hmm. types coming from how potentially it could get into the natural environment like a river. Yeah. Then you have a socioeconomic team and they were looking at people's perceptions of plastic and what they thought the solutions were to trying to mitigate it getting into the environment right. because these are the communities that live around the Ganges so know it like bread and butter. And then you had the water team, which is the team that I was in and we were on the water every day in a variety of different boats mm-hmm. uh, taking samples in kind of like a 3D layer. So yeah. we're taking samples from the river surface itself. We're taking samples at the bottom, so sediment, and then also in the air around the Ganges, so anything could deposit into the river. Right. And is this uh, investigation into plastics or specifically microplastics? How does that kind of differ in terms of research? Yeah, it's a good question uh, because how you tackle it and how you research it is completely different because mm-hmm. microplastics, because they're so small, you need a, a microscope and then what we call bigger plastics, so macroplastics. So imagine anything that's bigger than a, a fingernail, so yep. bigger than five millimeters in length. Uh, you can see it, so it's easier to count. Yeah. In the water study, although we did record any macro bigger bits of plastic that we mm-hmm. saw we focused on microplastic right because we know that microplastic is heavily abundant uh, in the ocean and eventually all bigger bits of plastic are going to break down into microplastic mm. so even if we stopped all plastic getting into our rivers and ocean today the amount of microplastic is continually going to grow from the breakdown of bigger items Right. Okay. So even the the bigger items will eventually become microplastics. That's interesting. Yeah. And and also it's funny that you mentioned uh, that it's not only in that river, it can be in the Thames or something. I recently had a friend who told me um, that there is a part of the Thames where when the water actually um, goes a little bit more of a lower tide, you can actually walk in the riverbed and you can see all the kind of yeah, artifacts and also plastics and other things that have just kind of collected into those rivers. So I thought that was a really interesting kind of visualization that even, um, you know, in a place like London, that you can actually visually go and see uh, in the Thames all the things that have just kind of collected over centuries, actually. So, yeah, exactly. And people make a hobby out of it. I've seen a few people when I've been working in London that, uh, you know, one man's trash is another man's treasure. Mm-hmm. Uh, they go around magnets and they try and see what they can find. Yeah. And that's of it's bikes and shopping trolleys and unfortunately plastic pollution. Yeah. It's almost quite a, 
poignant way of saying that our water systems are a way that we're just covering up rubbish. Right. And that you know it's there, but because the ocean is so vast and rivers are so fast moving, we often don't see it. Yeah. So when we get to see or hear the quantities that could be going into a river or potentially into the oceans, right. it can be very surprising. Yeah, definitely. And I think that that's a really important point about uh, microplastics and people's perception of it. As I've also heard you say before, it's the kind of investigation into the not so obvious, um, which I think it can be quite overwhelming for people. You know, I recently read an article uh, that was in The Guardian, which was talking about how microplastics are in everything from, you know, your food chain uh, to um, your washing machine when you wash your clothes, but also in remote parts of the Arctic. So I think it can be quite um, hard to grasp people when you actually can't see it uh, or you don't often see it. How could you kind of explain this in an actionable way that people can really do something about tackling this issue? Yeah, and I get it. It's, it's overwhelming and you feel like, what actions can I do that's actually going to make a difference? But what I've learned from the research that I've done is... In all honesty, small changes can make a huge difference. Mm -hmm. You as, you know, you're an individual person can have a huge impact on the environment. Mm -hmm. Let's say you are part of industry or government, then the choices that you make within those organizations can have even bigger. So use what handrails you have to try and make that change. But if we look at an individual, so we did the initial work on microbeads and facial scrubs. Mm -hmm. And then uh, there used to be tiny plastic particles that used to be put into facial scrubs to act as exfoliants to get the dead skin cells off. Mm -hmm. uh, but no one had done any previous work looking at how many could be in one bottle. Yeah. So my first chapter of my PhD, uh, I looked slightly crazy because I'd go to the supermarkets and to get enough replicates, I bought loads of different brands of facial scrubs um, and brought them back to the lab. Yeah. I looted them down, filtered them, so any of the liquid would pass through the filter paper, leaving yeah. any solids on top, which would be the plastic. Mm -hmm. And then once I had the plastic, I could weigh them and I could have a look at their size. And we were able to estimate that for a typical facial scrub bottle, there could be 3 million microplastic pieces in wow. there. Wow, that's, really, uh, that's really crazy. Crazy. Yeah. And then on a squirt on your hands, you could be washing your face with 10,000 tiny plastic pieces. Incredible. And speaking from, from, you know, my point of view, because I used to use these products. One, I never considered that there'd be plastic in there. Mm -hmm. Just what would be something natural that would biodegrade when you wash it down. I didn't right. think I even thought about it. I thought I was just using a facial scrub. Yeah. So to know that I was washing my face with plastic, which would then go down the drain, potentially through the sewage treatment works and into the ocean. By me not buying those products anymore, mm -hmm. I'm stopping potentially 10,000 plastic pieces from reaching the ocean right. each time. So in that one decision that I go to the supermarket and I decide what facial scrub to buy, I could look in the ingredients list and choose one that hasn't got any plastic, so it hasn't got polyethylene or polypropylene mm -hmm. or an alternative that you use. In that one moment, I'm stopping millions potentially going into the environment. Yeah. And then all of that public outcry and the decisions that the public were making and voicing their opinion that they didn't want to have facial scrubs that contain plastic. Yeah. That news started to trickle to industry. 
And then they started to voluntarily remove plastic from their products because it was unpopular mm. and be on the right side. And then eventually, internationally, they started to make a law banning microbees and facial scrubs. And wow. that all been from our tiny lab at the University of Plymouth, where wow. we were just curious about what was happening and how much was in a, a facial scrub. But it taught me the power of people and the voice yeah. of people. Yeah, so that was really, um, yeah, something that you researched, went to the public, public to legislation, uh, and from there to, to industry. Yeah, I mean, give power to the public. Yeah. And you and me, we mm-hmm. have such a powerful voice of what matters to us. And if we just keep using our voice more and voicing it to industry, and if we yeah. can have avenues where our voices can be heard, yeah, and industry takes them seriously, that's going to be a great way to pay for the future mm-hmm. and what would you say to because obviously well just looking around a lot of products are made out of plastic still currently um what would you say to the companies that are currently producing a product which is made of plastic um how can they make a sustainable change is that changing the um the type of material they use completely or to a to an alternative or is it about recycling or what would you say to them? What, what would be a concrete, actionable step for, for companies to take? I guess it depends on what the product is. And I wrongly started my research thinking that plastic was evil. Uh, the only way to fix the oceans and to fix the pr- plastic problem was to completely get rid of it. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm, I was completely wrong. Plastic is a, a fantastic material. Okay. That's a victim of its own success. Uh, I mean, even as I'm talking to you right now, my laptop is held on a, a tubbit box to yeah, make right. sure that yeah. level, you know, in my kitchen, I've got so much that food that's wrapped in plastic. Yeah. Like the clothes that I'm wearing, the socks I'm wearing are plastic. We're chatting yeah. through a laptop. Yeah. It's an incredible material that's only been made in the last 100 years. That's really revolutionized our lives and our lifestyle. Mm-hmm is how much we make of it and that is so durable that when we throw it away it's just going to persist in the environment mm-hmm. for potentially thousands of years no one truly knows how long it takes for plastic to break down because it's such a new material yeah. and we can all see the effects of it even walking to this podcast from giving my dog a walk along yeah. my road there was loads of plastic packaging on the floor because the seagulls have got into the bin yeah most of it all of the litter was plastic yeah. So I think that thing that industry can do is have discussions right at the beginning of when they're making a product mm-hmm. about the potential environmental impacts of that product, right. how they can try and mitigate it, and what's the end goal of that product. How are we going to dispose of it? Can it be reused again? Can you use another material that's going to be more environmentally friendly? Can we make sure that it's fully recyclable? Are the consumers going to know from the packaging how to recycle it or if they can use it again, is that obvious? So it's making sure that everything's black and white, thought of with the environment in mind. Yeah, right. So really looking at the the entire life cycle of the product and and the purpose of of the use of that product and and kind of, um, yeah, making sure that that aligns. That reminds me of um, of something we spoke about with um, Kimberly Miner. She was she had done this research to Mount Everest on um, it's right, and 
And I think that what she kind of pointed out was like, you know, they have to use this, um, this climbing gear in order to protect themselves in, in such harsh environments, but it's not something that is necessarily, um, you know, wise to use in a different context. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, kind of thinking about the, the use of the product as well. Hey, I'm guilty of it because I, I love blind, buying clothes. I love clothes and it's hard to change your mindset that I don't need new clothes all the time. Right. I can just use like old clothes and fix them if they get broken. If I'm going to a wedding, no one cares. I can just use an old dress. Yeah. So I'm so trying to change my mindset and say, no, Imogen, you don't need any more clothes. Fix what you have. Use what you have. You've got a full wardrobe. Mm-hmm. It's so easy to overconsume. Yeah, and I think that also kind of goes back to um, the companies thinking about the the durability and that whole lifespan of the products that they use. So building things in a way that it will last people for a long time, and it's not just something that uh, you know will be in the trash soon after because of the quality or you know the type of materials used. Exactly, and it's treating plastic like the durable material that it is mm-hmm. uh, I think once we change our mindsets and that's both individually and in industry yeah it's going to make some really big changes nice and um biodiversity of course is very linked to this and I think it's becoming more of a yeah a topic in terms of sustainability also for companies um, yeah, what would you say is important for companies to take into consideration in, in this regard? I think biodiversity is the flavor of life. It, it's really what makes us so unique on this planet that wherever you go, there's just so much diversity that you can see, whether that's in the ocean, whether that's in the air with birds. Yeah, I think, I think a fact that I heard recently was that in a spoonful of soil, there could be 40,000 microorganisms. Mm-hmm. So we're just completely surrounded by life. Yeah. What companies need to consider, and it's you know completely similar to plastic, is how what they're doing could potentially impact biodiversity. Because once we lose it, we're not getting it back. Right. So we need to protect what we have. Right, yeah. That's an interesting point because it's not something that, you know, um, if a species goes extinct, that could have kind of a, a domino effect on other things in in uh, in the nature as well. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think I was having a conversation with a friend once where we were talking about mosquitoes and the fact that mosquitoes spread a lot of disease. And mm. wouldn't it be amazing if we could just get rid of mosquitoes? Right. <laughs> I'm actually completely corrected because mosquitoes do have a function in, you know, some ecosystems. Maybe they're eaten in, in their food chain. Mm-hmm. So everything is required. Yeah. Uh, everything has a purpose. We might just not know it. But I think the thing that really sticks in my head is once we lose something, whether that's a tiny bug all the way to like a charismatic elephant, we're not getting it back. And we don't want to see this stuff in a museum thinking, hey, this is what we used to have. Yeah. We need to open our eyes and protect what we do have now. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And there are repercussions for those things. And are there 
kind of specific industries that you would say um, you've discovered in your in your research um, that are the most polluting um, for microplastics in particular? Yeah, it's it's hard to say because there's so many different elements. Right. I think maybe the ones that I've researched before, just probably because I know the most about them. But for me, my own personal opinion, it's all of this unnecessary packaging. Mm. And I understand that packaging is required to make food last longer um, and the durability and transport. And that plastic yeah. is actually better than, let's say, glass. So we're reducing uh, fossil fuel usage and transport. But when you see packaging of oh, my bananas over there wrapped in plastic, they don't need to be wrapped in plastic. Uh, they've got their own natural coating anyway. Yeah. Uh, I think let's try and minimize the amount of plastic that we use so it's only necessary. Mm -hmm. Once it's necessary, there's a purpose. Yeah. But the unnecessary plastic is just going to create a lot of waste that we can't handle. And eventually it does go into our environment. Yeah, again, I guess that goes back to the kind of the companies thinking about all the necessary steps that are needed in their uh, production of their product and kind of reevaluating um, what are the necessary elements and what are the best ways to sell their product to consumers and what is the, the consequence of that and the, the life cycle of it. Yeah, and I'd love for industry to, like we said at the beginning, to listen to what consumers want or what their concerns are. Yeah. So the washing clothes. We did a lot of research looking at when we wash our clothes and they're swishing and swirling around in the washing machine. How many tiny plastic fibers can come off? Yeah. Long story short, we found that 700,000 fibers can come off your clothes in a typical clothes wash, which is a huge amount seeing as we wash our clothes on a daily, weekly basis and then multiply that for a town, a city, yeah. the whole world. Uh, what we find in the environment a lot is fibers and plastic fibers. Yeah. So there's two things. One is fast fashion and getting away from buying clothes that cost hardly anything yeah. and change your mindsets that buy clothes that are durable, uh, if you can do, um, buy clothes that you can fix, uh, you know, buy clothes that are pre-loved. I loved going charity dress shopping. She so can uh, find some absolute gems. Yeah. Also to the clothing industry, let's start looking at how we can try and make clothes differently so that they shed less fibres. So looking at innovation all the way to washing machines and looking at different inventions that can try and capture fibers within the washing cycle. So whether you're an industry, so selling the clothes, making the clothes, washing the clothes, there's things that you can do within your own bubble mm -hmm. that can have a positive impact. Yeah, right. So really, yeah, finding different innovations within all the steps of uh, a clothing piece, for example. Yeah, exactly. Nice. Interesting. Yeah, I'm a big fan of, uh, of secondhand fashion. And also, I think that there's a lot of really cool, innovative companies that have come up with, um, yeah, recycled or upcycled uh, clothing pieces as well, which I find really interesting. And I'm curious to see how that kind of evolves as well. Yeah. Something I was going to do recently uh, for weddings, there's um, a company, a few companies now, that rather than buying a dress, that realistically we're going to wear a handful of times if most, and then potentially trying to send it on. But this company was built on 
people like eBay can show the dresses that they have and then you can rent them. Mm-hmm. So the owner of the dress will be getting some revenue, getting some income. Right. Person gets to rent a really nice dress for not much money. Right. And it means that you don't have a wardrobe full of dresses that you're just going to wear a handful of times and creating waste, which you don't need. Yeah, well, that's uh, really interesting. Yeah, so I think this whole renting culture and using what other people have is hopefully really going to take off. Yeah, nice. And yeah, what would be kind of, if you would say like the the key revelation or the key finding that you have found through through your research? Uh, or maybe the most the, surprising finding? Yeah, I guess the most surprising finding, actually working with Kim, where we were part of the scientist team supporting the expedition team from National Geographic to Mount Everest. Yeah. So honestly, not knowing what we were going to find, we got snow samples all the way from base camp to near the summit in a place called Mount Everest Balcony. Yeah. I found plastic microfibers in every single snow sample. Oof. So that really surprised me and that opened my eyes and it showed me that wherever humans go, we're almost leaving a trail of breadcrumbs of plastic. Wow. Uh, and Mount Everest is somewhere originally I thought would be very pristine and clean, but the way that we've commercialized it in many ways, and it hasn't got a landfill site, you know, at the top of Mount Everest. So people yeah. unfortunately of weight, uh, waste and oxygen bottles, cigarettes there to make a load lighter. So we're polluting the tallest mountain on earth. We know yeah. that we're finding plastic all the way in the deep sea. So it's really, is there anywhere that we've gone or that's still clean of plastic? Because uh, uh, it seems like everywhere we go, we're just finding it now. Yeah. So that's like a, ugh, in, in the heart, a bad feeling. Yeah. But the best feeling is knowing how much people care about the environment and even just going outside, taking a walk, even if it's in the city, just seeing that blue sky, even if it's cloudy, just getting that fresh air. People want to protect the planet because they love it. Yeah. And from every research piece that I've had, having people email me or chat to me from, oh, I'm not going to buy those facial scrubs again. I've gone to a natural alternative. Or rather than get all these carrier bags when I go shopping, even yeah. if they're biodegradable, I'm just going to use the ones that I have or a tote bag. It's really shown me the power that people can have. Yeah. And it does make me optimistic for the future. We just need to make some really big changes and industry and government need to help us implement those. Right. And on that note, is there any other companies or uh, organizations or people who inspire you by the things that they are doing to make the society or um, yeah their industries more sustainable yeah there's loads I can think of off the top of my head like clothing companies uh, looking at uh, clothing companies like Finisterre mm-hmm. which are focused on durability making clothes that will last that hopefully you'll have for a lifetime and providing a service that if they get broken, then they can fix it. Right. I think Patagonia also does the same. Yeah. So companies that are willing to make a big step forward to ensure that the impact that they're having, the customer's happy, but then the customer also knows that they're trying really hard with their environmental impact to make it better. 
Uh, and then in terms of organizations, Surface Against Sewage, Marine Conservation Society, their organizations are charities that are bringing the environment to the people and teaching us that we can, again, have a big impact in what we're doing. Get outside, some litter pickers, start litter picking. Because if you see someone litter picking or even picking up some rubbish on the street, yeah. it's like a, a ripple effect that you're inspired to do it yourself. So you're more likely to do it. The person behind you that's seen you do it is more likely to do it. So if we can create a whole world of people just picking up rubbish and putting it in the relevant place rather than the environment, then we can try and clean ourselves out of this mess. You've inspired me to go outside to to do the same after this. And we're already at the end. So I'd like to thank you for your time and for sharing uh, all these really valuable insights. And I think um, I've learned a lot and I'm sure that others will as well. So thank Thanks you. Thanks for having me on. Cheers. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks for listening to our chat. Don't forget to follow and review so we know how you like the conversation. See you next time.